we're continuing on in the book of Romans, and um, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Romans. It's a letter that was written by a guy named Paul. It's in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And this, uh, this week, we're going to come back to the very same place that we were last week. Uh, last week, we were looking at what's been called the most important paragraph in the whole Bible. And that's Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. And the reason that it's called the most important paragraph in the entire Bible is that that paragraph that we're going to look at again tonight is an announcement and an explanation of the fact that in Jesus, God has done something to bring salvation to the human race. That God has done something to save the human race from our sin, from our brokenness. And last week, we looked at the, the, the fact that God saves sinners. Just, just simply the fact that God saves sinners by, by making us right with himself. But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to that paragraph and we're going to look at the basis for that. How is it that God saves sinners? Just go, you know, how, how is it that something so powerful and so dramatic and so history-shaping could have taken place? And there are two reasons that this is, is, is really very important to grasp. And the first reason is that if you're someone who's here tonight and you call yourself a Christian, our whole lives rest upon this. Our whole lives rest upon this. Christians are asked to stake everything on the claim that Jesus truly, truly made a way for us to know God. We're asked to stake everything on that claim. There are 11 Christians who die a day for their faith around the world. And that's a low estimate. That's a very low estimate. And probably, in reality, the numbers could very well be two, three, four times higher than that. And the reason that they're willing to die and to lay their lives down for their faith is that they believe it. They've staked their lives on the fact that in Jesus, God has really done something to rescue us. But if there's no basis for that, then the blood of the martyrs is meaningless. Christians are just a bunch of fools. Why not live for something else? You know, why not just eat, drink, and be merry for the long we die? It matters to us because we're asked to stake our lives on this claim. But it also matters not just because our lives rest upon it, but it matters because his life rests upon it. Jesus' life rests upon it. The answer that Christians give to this question of, well, how was it? How was it that God was able to save sinners? Is it was through the cross. The cross where God laid down his very life to save a bunch of undeserving people who would just as soon have spat in his face. Was God stupid? Was God a fool for making the centerpiece of his great redemption story the utter horror and carnage of the cross. And he would have been a fool unless it actually had worked. Unless the cross actually accomplished something, then it was completely pointless and meaningless. And, and, and beyond that, the cross is the glory of the Christian only if it's the only glory of the Christian. If the cross was just one way among many different ways, if there were 
all kinds of options. If, 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 if salvation were like a trip to the, to the grocery store, where there's hundreds of brands of cereal, and, 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 and hundreds of brands of this, and hundreds of brands of that, if it were just consumer choice, pick your own adventure, then the cross is a waste, and God is a tyrant, because he wasted the life of his own son. And the reason I say that is because of, of the very words of Jesus. When Jesus was less than 24 hours away from dying, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to his Father. He says, My Father, Father God, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And what he's saying, he's saying, if there is any other way, if there is any other way for you to rescue human beings without me having to go to the cross, then please, please would you let that be. And he compares the cross to a cup. You know, he compares it to that because he's thinking of a cup of poison that you would drain in order to kill yourself. He's saying that that is what the cross was. And he says, Father, would you take this cup away from me? And this is Jesus we're talking about. Throughout his ministry, he lived the perfect life, the life that we should have lived. And as a result of that, God listened to Jesus. Whenever Jesus performed a miracle, Whenever Jesus heals someone, whenever Jesus performed a work of compassion or of mercy or performed signs or wonders, raised people from the dead, he did that because God enabled him. Jesus asked and God answered except for once. Surely, many of us, probably all of us, have had the experience of praying a prayer that God did not answer. It's been said that God would give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. And yet Jesus is God. And he prays a prayer that bounces off the ceiling of heaven as though it were glass. And God says, no. He says, my father, take this cup away from me. And God refuses. Because through that, he was demonstrating the cross is the only the cross is the Christian's glory only if it is the Christian's only glory. And that is what this passage speaks to. Why is the cross the only glory? Why does our salvation have to be based on a torn and bloody scene of death, decay, destruction, and carnage? If God wanted to forgive us, why couldn't he just forgive us? And in fact, in our culture, that question, why can't God simply snap his fingers and forget, that probably is one of the most valid objections, one of the most common objections to the cross. And that, 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 it's a valid question. It's a valid question. But what I want to show you, and what I want to point out from this passage, is that if that really were the kind of God that we had, if it really were the case that God just were to snap his fingers and just forgive, no cross, no death, no sacrifice, then that God would be a monster. That God would be a monster. You would not want to worship that God. So what I want to do is I want to show you three things. I want to show you the monstrosity of a God who just forgives.
I want to show you the majesty of the God who forgives justly. And I want to show you the madness of boasting in anything but the cross. Now I'm going to read our passage. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold. There's, there, there you go. The most important paragraph in the Bible out of all literature. Uh, you probably would not have guessed it. Uh, first thing I want to draw out of this is the fact that if we have a God, if it were the case that God simply snapped his fingers and just forgave, then that would not be a God in one worship. Monstrosity of a God who just forgives. The, the, the question we're asking tonight is not whether, according to the Bible, God saves sinners, but how he does that, what the basis for that is. And actually, the text is pretty straightforward. In verse 25, what it says is that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So what that's saying is that the, the, the basis for God saving people is through a sacrifice. It's through, it's through a sacrifice, which means blood, which means death, which means which, which, which <laughs> means something grisly and, 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 and it means carnage. In other words, it means through the cross. And earlier tonight, I told you that the, the, one of the most common objections that our culture would have to that is that the cross is unnecessary because it, it, it said that God is a God of love. And if God's a God of love, a God of love would surely not need something so harsh in order for there to be forgiveness. He should be able to snap his fingers and just forgive. So let me read you a quote from a guy named Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most well-known atheists. And he says this, this very thing. And listen to how strong he puts it. He says, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. He's British, so he's saying that. <laughs> if God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying this very objection, why can't God just forgive? And in fact, in saying this, he's agreeing with the testimony of non-believing men and women all through the ages, to whom the cross is utter stupidity. There's a, a slide with a rope on the screen of a picture, and, and this is from, I think, like the second or third century. You probably can't see this terribly well, but this, this is a, a, a trace 
of ancient graffiti that was found, you know, somewhere in kind of ancient Rome. And, and what the inscription on the bottom says is Alexandros worships his God. And you can see there's a, a, a picture there of a guy who's meant to be a Christian. And there's a figure meant to be Jesus on a cross with the head of a donkey. And it's a little bit like, you know, when you're in a, in a bathroom stall and you see, like, you know, someone, you know, trashing another friend or something with a sharpie. That's basically what this is. And basically what this drawing is saying is saying the cross is stupidity. Anyone who would worship a god like that, who'd suffer and who died and got executed, would be insane. So not much has changed. And in fact, the Bible itself says that in the world's eyes, the cross is foolishness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. If you were to paraphrase that, you could simply say the cross makes no sense unless you've actually met the God of the universe. God has confounded the wisdom of the wise. Professors of theology, professors of philosophy, who don't believe in Jesus. I mean, this passage is saying that they are fools. That's the objection. That's the objection that our culture would raise against the cross. That if God is about a love, you should be able to snap his fingers and just forgive. And what I want to show you is that you don't want God to be like that. And the reason for that, there's a, there's a verse in Psalm 143, verse 11. I'm going to read it for you. It says, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, and your righteousness bring me out of trouble. So, so, so you, you can almost paraphrase that one. It says, For your name's sake. That's basically talking about the glory of God, or, or the reputation of God, the grandeur, the goodness of God. It's basically saying, for your glory's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, and your righteousness bring me out of trouble. If you listen to that carefully, there's a parallel being drawn, saying that like God's glory is related to God's righteousness. That for God to be glorious, and for God to be good, then he has to be a God who's perfectly righteous, perfectly just. So God is only worthy of infinite worth, infinite worship, if he's a God not only of love, but of justice. And the funny thing about this is that even though our culture has a much harder time with the idea of a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God who is angry about sin, other cultures don't. And, and I mean, in true humility, would be wrong if we said that our culture knows everything that's best. I mean, humility would say it's worth seeing the way that other cultures look at reality. And in fact, when other cultures look at this reality, 
they actually have some insight on this. I heard a story about this once from um, a, a guy who wrote an account of, of a time when he was speaking to an audience that included um, a, a man who was originally from India. And after this man spoke, um, and, and the guy had been speaking on, on the Old Testament, you know, it's oftentimes been kind of wrongly assumed that in the Old Testament, God is a God of justice, he's a God of wrath. In the New Testament, he's a God of love. And that, that's not really the case, but you know, that's very often kind of the stereotype. And so, you know, one of the reasons that this guy's telling this, this story is because he's trying to show that, well, as a matter of fact, the God of the Old Testament are the same. Well, well anyway, he, he describes how after he's spoken, this, this man from India comes up to him and says, you know, thank you so much for preaching out of the Old Testament tonight. And he went on to tell him his story about how he had come from the lowest caste in India. He was from a caste that was despised, that was rejected, and growing up he had faced all kinds of harassment and violence and injustice at the hands of the upper class people. One day he arrives at university. He finds a Bible in his room that had been left by a group of Christians. And he's never read the Bible before. And he opens it up, and he just so happens to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. And 1 Kings chapter 21 is the story of King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. And if you know that story, it's a story about how King Ahab, who's an unjust king of Israel, one day decides that he wants to wrongly extort a piece of land from one of his next-door neighbors, a guy named Naboth. And so he uses his power as king to oppress his neighbor, steal his vineyard, and, and put him to death. And so this, this man, who has experienced this very kind of injustice, is amazed that this is what the Bible is all about. He reads the story and says, this is my story. My family has experienced all of these things. Theft of land, false accusations, murders, the brutality of the powerful. And he read on and he was amazed to read about how a prophet of a god named Yahweh, a guy named Elijah, comes along and confronts Ahab. He denounces Ahab. Ahab is eventually judged and punished by God. And he's astounded. He has never known a God who sides with the suffering, who condemns the government and the powerful for their wicked deeds. And in his words, he said, I never knew such a God existed. And he goes back and he reads through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We think about those and say, oh, wow, this put me to sleep. All those, you know, it's the part where God is talking about all these laws for, for the Israelites. But as he's reading this, he's thinking, wow, you know, this God has thought of everything. He's thought of all kinds of rules to prevent injustice. Here's a guy who has millions of gods within Hinduism to choose from. And the God of the Old Testament, a God of justice, is the God that he comes to know and to cherish. Because this God has a spine. This is a God who can't be bought off. It doesn't matter if you're upper class. It doesn't matter if you're lower class. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or educated or uneducated. Wrongdoers are obligated to pay the consequences. In other words, the reason that this God is worthy of worship is because he's a God of judgment. And what this says is that God, if he were not a God of justice, would be a monstrosity. We would not want to worship him. And once again, I, I have another you know, voice here of someone who comes from a, a culture that would have understood this better than us. This is from a guy who uh, was a theologian who lived in what's called the former Yugoslav Republic of India, who 
might know back in the 1990s, there was a big war that involved a lot of ethnic conflict. And, and he said that, that as a Christian, prior to this conflict, he said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. And that is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath as a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And if any of you have ever experienced injustice, if you've been wronged, if you know other people, close friends, family members who have been wronged, then you know that justice is something it would be a monstrosity if God simply forgave and swept justice under the rug. And praise him that that's not how he is. Instead, we celebrate the majesty of a God who forgives, not by just forgiving, but he forgives justly. I want to go back to this passage. In this passage, look, look at verses 25 and 26. In the verse before, what's announced is that Jesus has brought about redemption. And redemption is just a word that means to be bought back, to be saved or rescued out of slavery, out of bondage. And in verses 25 and 26, it gives the basis for that, saying that God presented Jesus, he's the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, and, and that, that through this, God was demonstrating his justice. And the reason it says this, it goes on, because in his forbearance, God had left the sins committed before him unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So what this is saying is that the cross was fundamentally an act of justice. When Jesus died on the cross, that was God judging Jesus for sin. And there have been a lot of different ways that the Christians have tried to explain what actually it was that happened on the cross. Why the cross happened. There's, there's different theories of the atonement, is what they're called. A theory that, well, the cross was about a, God trying to show us a moral influence. You know, the cross was an act of love. And so for God to show us the way to live, he had to hold up Jesus as the perfect example so that that would influence us, that would inspire us to live lives like his. That's one thing. There's the, the, the theory of ransom, that on the cross, Jesus buys us back and redeems us from sin and slavery, and there's some truth to that too. And then there's another theory about Christ being a victor, that on the cross, he's 
nailing the, the, the exposing the powers of, of sin and Satan and and, and 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 all of these things that were arrayed against us. He's he's stripping those things of their power and authority and conquering them. And of course, it's true that Jesus conquered death. There's truth to all of these things, but there's another element of what the cross means that this passage is getting at. That's more than simply Jesus being like a good influence or him rescuing us from burning a lion's back or him conquering death. There's the element of sacrifice and substitution. Sacrifice and substitution. When it says that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, the Bible is using a word that harkens back to the Old Testament. It's the word hilasterium. I don't need to say that with you, but just, you know, just hear that there's a, there's a particular word. It's like a technical term. You would find like in a, you know, like in a theologian's dictionary. And that word references back to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. The, the, the hilasterium, that word, referred to the, it was called the mercy seat. It was the place where once a year the high priest of Israel would take some blood of an animal and he would sprinkle it on, on that, that place. That was supposedly the place where God's presence would be enthroned. And that blood would make atonement. It would bring peace so that that way the people could continue to live in the presence of God. And so Paul is being very deliberate when he uses this word. What he's saying is, for there to be peace between God and us, there had to be a sacrifice like that. There had to be something that died. There had to be blood that was shed in order for, for us to be made right with God. And that, of course, means substitution. You know, it's not, thank goodness, our blood that had to go into that place. It was the blood of, of, of an animal back in that time. Why is it that sacrifices were necessary? Why is it that blood was necessary? When I was in college, I had a professor who uh, was driving down the road one day. And while he's driving down the road, he, he actually kind of hits a deer that you know, races out in front of him. And, and he doesn't kill the poor thing. Like he is, his wife sees him in the rearview mirror and says, Jim, that thing's still alive. You've got to pull off the side of the road and put the thing out of its misery. So, so he pulls off to the side of the road and he gets a hunting knife out of his car, or out of his glove box. And he goes back and he like holds the thing, cradles its head in, in his arms, slits its throat, and he watches as like the life drains out of this, this poor deer's eyes. And he said, he said, man, you know, I had to do that every single time that I sinned. I would take sin a lot more seriously. If I had to do that every time I sin, I would take sin a lot more seriously. So I think one of the reasons that God had his people in the Old Testament offer a sacrifice was to teach them that, that justice, that forgiveness, that sin is always constant. And this is the same reason that God put himself on a cross in our place. I'm going to read you just one way that, that someone has tried to pull some of these things together. This is from writer John Stott, who says, We must therefore hold fast to the biblical revelation of the living God who hates evil, is disgusted and angered by it, and refuses ever to come to terms with it in consequence. In consequence, we may be sure that when he searched in his mercy for some way to forgive, cleanse, and accept evildoers, it was not along the road of moral compromise. 
It had to be a way which was equally expressive of his love and of his wrath. And that's what the cross is. That's what the cross is. And that's why the cross is the answer to the, the deepest needs, the deepest longings, the deepest cries of the human heart. Because all of us want what the cross offers, which is to be both loved and known at the same time. This is the plot, by the way, of just about every you know, teen romance novel or, 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 or movie or whatever. Uh, you know, so like the movie Walk to Remember. You know, I'm or walk to remember. Is anyone brave enough to raise their hands to say that they say, oh wow, oh god, okay, okay. You don't have to DVD, okay. Well, I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Ariel. Ariel says she'll lend it to me. <laughs> no, thanks. Um, To be known without 
without the mask is in a sense to be judged. You can't actually judge the nature of something unless you see it for what it is. The God we serve knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees us from the tip of our head to the tip of our toes. He looks inside every single one of our hearts and he looks past every single mask that we might wear. The mask that tries to present to other people that I'm a really smart person, or I'm a really put together person, I'm a really social person, you know, whatever. God sees through all of those things. He judges us for who we really are, and on the cross he says, I love you anyway. I love you anyway. What, what the cross shows is that you can't have true love in the absence of judgment. You can only have true love in the presence of judgment. And the cross is the one place in all of human history where perfect love and perfect justice come together. The cross is the only place God looks inside every single one of our hearts and makes a judgment. He says, there are things in your heart that are wrong. And I love you anyway. I love you for nothing that you bring to the table. I love you for nothing that you can offer me. I love you in spite of the fact that all you can offer me is death. You put me to death. It was your sins that held me to the cross. And I love you. God's a God of justice such that no sin can go unpunished before him. He's also a God of love who is not willing to perish because of our sins. And that is why Paul concludes this section by saying that in showing the cross, God is proving himself to be both just, that means righteous, perfect righteousness, and the justifier, those who make you know, who makes us right with him. You have justice and love right alongside each other. So that, as Paul ties a bow on this whole thing, the only thing he can say is that this means the end of all human boasting. And the reason he says this is that when he's you know, writing to a group of people who thought they were better than each other, because the Jews think that they're better than the, the non-Jews, the non-Jews think they're better than the Jews, and Paul says, shut up. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> you know, the cross really is true that, you know, what do you have boasting? You know, it's not like being a Jew makes you better because God didn't die for you because you were a Jew. He died for you because he loves you. <laughs> the only thing that, that boasting ourselves does is it divides us from people because we say, well, because I'm a this or I'm a that or I'm this color skin or that color skin or because I'm smart or because you're not smart and therefore I'm in this camp and you're in that camp. It divides us. It makes us deny, you know, the fact that, well, you know, the, the, the people that I hang out with have these flaws, or the people who hang out with over here have these flaws. Leads us to not leads us to be anxious when, when, when we feel threatened by you know by if we, if we lose the very thing we're putting our identity in, boasting destroys. And so Paul destroys boasting. He says the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's the only thing you have to boast in. And this is the, so this this is the basis. The cross is how God can be both a God of love and a God justice. The only place where those two things meet the entire history of the universe. Let me pray for us and this moment. Lord, thank you that the cross is um, good and true and powerful. And you meet us through what you did there. Um, 
Jesus' name.